Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook, and I'm recording this on Friday the 25th of November. I shall be reviewing the week's events in the markets and in the investment trust sector in particular with James Carthew, a director of Quoted Data, the investment trust research company. Uh, I shall also be talking to Carlos Hardenberg, the lead manager of the Mobius Investment Trust, ticker MMIT, which is an emerging markets specialist which came to the market four years ago this year. It's been a quiet week in the markets, to be honest, and perhaps that's no such bad thing after the excitement we've had more recently. The US market was closed for Thanksgiving Day on Thursday. And over the week, we saw a slight pickup in equity markets and bond yields remain pretty much where they were over the course of the week. Ditto the oil price and the copper price, not much movement across many of the main asset classes this week. But it's not been a week without interest. There's certainly been a lot of news from the investment trust sector. Some of it uh, not all positive, I'm afraid to say. Uh, But there's some interesting stories which uh, we shall be discussing, not least another episode of a short seller attacking uh, a listed investment trust. In this case, Home REIT, uh, an investment trust that specialises in providing accommodation for homeless people, which has raised uh, a significant amount of money. Uh, since it first came to the market uh, just two years ago. But its shares have been very weak this week following this attack by a US short selling firm known as Viceroy Research. There's also been news on a number of other fronts as well. A lot of results coming out this week, which will be summarised as always on the Moneymakers website for subscribers to the Moneymakers Circle. Uh, We've heard from uh, the Edinburgh Investment Trust, Montanara UK Smaller Companies, Rockwood Strategic, Bailey Gifford European Growth, JP Morgan Japan Small Cap Growth and Income, Worldwide Healthcare and Utilico Emerging Markets. And then in the alternative asset space, we've also had updates and announcements from uh, Caledonia, Personal Assets, Augmentum Fintech, Hickel Infrastructure, Sequoia Economic Infrastructure Income, LXI REIT, Next Energy Solar Fund, Real Estate Credit Investments, and value and indexed property income. So an awful lot of results to chew over. Not time to cover them all in the podcast. But as I said, you can uh, you can read all the details and a summary on our website. In addition to a short seller attack on home REIT, we've also heard news of manager changes at Digital 9 Infrastructure, another relative newcomer to the market. Uh, and there's been news of fundraising as well with the announcement that uh, an outfit called 8085 Global Mid-Market Infrastructure Income, a bit of a mouthful, is looking to raise up to $300 million in an IPO to invest in uh, mid-market infrastructure assets in transport and logistics, utilities and digital assets. At the same time, we've heard that shareholders have voted to approve the new investment policy proposed by J.P. Morgan Russian Securities, which is going to be renamed as the J.P. Morgan Emerging Europe, Middle East and Africa Securities Trust. And its ticker is going to change from JRS to J-E-M-A. More on that in a moment. Uh, We've also heard latest quarterly NAV from Chrysalis, the uh, early stage private equity venture growth capital investment trust whose latest quarterly NAV was down 9.6% as of 30th of June. And we also had a series of updates from Renewable Energy Infrastructure Trust, which I'll be discussing with James Carthew. So all in all, it's been a pretty busy week. This is what uh, James Carthew had to say when I asked him about the markets and what's been happening. We're definitely sort of an interesting stage, I think. Everybody's watching the direction of interest rates and how far they're going to keep going up, I think. But it was interesting, we had some inflation numbers out, and they're still looking pretty bad in the UK. So I think the RPI is it's almost 15% now, which is crazy. I know nobody looks at that anymore. They all look at CPI now. But we still look at it because um, our income's linked to it, and subsidy income for the renewable sector is linked to that as well. So that's that's been climbing upwards still. My gut feeling is that interest rates are going to have to keep going up. And um, actually, we might be living with higher interest rates and higher inflation for some time yet. 
all of which will feed through into things. But um, no, it's been a little bit perky, as you say. There's certainly a lot of people out there who would like to believe there's going to be an end-of-year rally. There often is an end-of-year rally. And uh, we've had all these other indicators like the midterm elections are usually followed by a positive stock market for a couple of months anyway to the end of the year. But as you say, it's the big issues are still to be resolved. And uh, there seems to be a sort of mixture of messages coming out. We've seen commodity prices have weakened, though they've actually uh, stabilised this week, which suggests people are worried about recession and then the the impact on that on inflation and interest rates and so on. But uh, for the moment, I would certainly say the jury's out and where we're going to go next year. I'm rather inclined to think it's going to get worse before it gets better. But um, well, are... one of the problems that we've got this week, again, is the COVID lockdowns in China getting worse again. So the COVID cases are going through the roof. And uh, after initially hinting that they were going to be a bit more lax on the zero COVID rules, they seem to have gone completely the other way now. And there's a quite large swathes of the country are locked down, which affects their growth, it affects demand for all sorts of commodities, and, you know, it's a knock-on effect for all sorts of things. Supply chains, you know. Indeed, and uh, looking at some of the performance in the investment trust sector, we've seen that the Chinese trust, they did perk up uh, last week, but they've sold off again this week. Well, let's move on and talk a little bit about the news this week, and there has been some news, I'd say, somewhere not all of it positive, unfortunately, but let's kick off with uh, talking about fundraising. We've actually heard about a potential new issue, which has been something of a rare beast this year. Uh, what can you tell us about 8085 Global Mid-Market Infrastructure Income Trust? No prizes for uh, brevity in the name there. What are they hoping to do and what do we know about them? So 8085 actually is a new name for a fund that tried to launch last year. So then it was coming under the name of Alinda Capital Partners. It's very much the same idea. I think it sort of describes it all in the name. But it's infrastructure, but not the sort of public-private partnership type infrastructure that we're used to in the UK with things like HICL and international public partnerships, that sort of thing. And it's much more towards the kind of 3i infrastructure end of things. So investing in things like transport and logistics, utilities, data centers, digital networks which offer you, they say, a combination of growth and income. So whereas a normal infrastructure fund would be more of a sort of income focus, they hope to get some capital growth as well. So they're looking to make returns of about 8 to 10% per annum, which is not too bad if they can achieve that. They've got some investments lined up already because they did have an existing unlisted fund. So when they didn't get the fund off the ground last time, that unlisted fund bought some of these things that they were planning to buy then. And the idea is if this thing gets away, they're looking for 300 million pounds. But if this thing gets away, then it's going to buy a slice of the unlisted fund and make some direct co-investments into three of those investments. So they've got a thing called ACL, which is airport logistics. So it's the trucks that move the pallets around to the air freight. Um, they've got 70,000 of these apparently, which is quite impressive. They've got a fiber network business in Kansas City, where they've done a sort of carve out from a, a US telecoms company. That looks quite interesting, perhaps. And there was another thing, I don't know if this is exactly rubbish trucks, but they describe it as environmental waste management vehicles, uh, again, in the US. Um, I think part of the sales angle for this is it's actually got a bit more North American exposure than most of the competition have. So it should all be interesting stuff. And it'd be interesting to see whether people take to it this time. Last time it was competing directly head-to-head with the Parity Infrastructure Fund that went on and raised £400 million. So I think that was a, a tough act to compete with. So now that it's sort of got the field to itself, we'll have to wait and see whether they actually make it across the line this time. Yeah, well, it would be a good thermometer of whether or not the fundraising market can pick up again after the troubles we've had this year. This one seems to be uh, proof of the old adage, where there's muck, there's brass. You know, that seems to be what we're talking about. But we've basically to watch that one. We've had a couple of other potential IPOs also announced in the last few weeks, long-term assets and uh, conviction life sciences. We don't yet know whether they're going to get away. How do you think those will go? We'll have to wait and see. So conviction life sciences first, that is small cap biotech, sort of bias against the US part of that market with the angle that a lot of this is very cheap because the biotech sector sold off effectively. So they had a massive ramp up during COVID when everybody was looking for cures for the virus. And then after the excitement died down, the the sector became quite in love for a while. So there is an opportunity. There was a stat, I can't remember the exact numbers now, but there was an enormous number of biotech companies trading at less than the value of the cash in their balance sheet. And obviously, 
with these things if they do manage to discover something then a bigger player will come along and snap them up quite often so there, there is some upside there it's being run by an outfit called plain english finance there's a chap who's written a book called andrew craig we've sort of written some pieces on them i think there's going to be more information coming out shortly i think maybe they've announced the prospectus this morning so we're going to have to start to dig around for that and then the other one is this long-term assets fund now, I can't remember the name of the chap that's running it, but he's been around for a while doing private equity stuff. And he's got sort of various bees in his bonnet about things that he wants to do, one of which is to build an interconnector between Iceland and the UK to give us all cheap electricity from Icelandic geothermal, which all sounds great stuff. But he's run a business that is sort of wrapping up defined benefit pension schemes into a larger vehicle. And he, he wants to try and do a sort of super one of these and put the ball together and then use that as a vehicle to fund big infrastructure projects. So it's all very, very grand, but it does mean that this thing comes with a portfolio of existing assets that he's assembled already and a sort of backstop. It could not raise any money at all and just, just list with the existing assets. So just to give an introduction rather than an IPO. That, to me, suggests that it might get away, but they haven't actually published prospectus yet, I think. So, again, as you say, if he doesn't actually raise any money, then it will be easier to get started. It won't necessarily answer the the question about whether or not there's enough demand out there anymore. Going back to the conviction life sciences, I mean, the biotech sector has uh, had a pretty torrid time, so it might well be... uh, a good time in, in terms of opportunity and valuations. But of course, this is always the conundrum with investment trusts, isn't it? To get a new issue away or a new an IPO away, you tend to have to do it when uh, markets are buoyant and uh, not when the kind of things you want to buy are very cheap. It's quite a difficult balancing act to get that right, is it not? Definitely is, definitely is. So the Commission Life Sciences people are appealing to retail investors. They're saying, you're more sensible and long-term than some of these institutions. You'll get the story, so we want you to stop up money. So they're not looking for huge amounts, I think. So it will be interesting to see how it goes. So a few signs of life in terms of the fundraising market. I should also perhaps mention in passing that if you produce a prospectus written by somebody who's interested in plain English, that would be a good thing too. See, I can't help but say that. On the corporate front this week also, we heard the result of the shareholder vote on the future of JP Morgan Russian Securities which obviously has had a difficult time this year. Tell us what happened there, uh, James. So it has got approval to become, effectively, it's Eastern Europe, Middle East, Africa, just sort of broadening out its remit beyond Russia. It's going to use the cash that it's got in the portfolio, which was about £17 million, to fund a portfolio in that area. And it's actually not a bad business model, I think. So there's an existing fund, there's a bearings fund, bearing emerging and media opportunities. And um, the Gulf region in particular has been doing very well. There's a dedicated Middle Eastern fund called called Gulf Investments that's been one of the best performing emerging markets funds recently. So they're they're not all the same. They don't all perform in line with each other. And that's why actually it makes a nice, it's a nice idea to kind of spread these things out because they're not really captured that much by other emerging markets funds, which tend to be dominated by China and India. So um, I do think it's an interesting idea. I think it it is slightly hamstrung because the the existing investors were owning JP Morgan Russian as a sort of option on the idea that maybe Russia would be rehabilitated and they'd be able to deal in Russian securities again. And the assets that have been written down to zero would suddenly be worth something. So they were very worried that they were going to be diluted. And so JP Morgan had to promise that they would definitely, definitely were not going to raise any more money for the fund, which to me just leaves it as a sort of funny little rump trust that, you know, even if it does very well, it's not being able to expand. And I just think that's, that's uh, slightly weird, but we'll, we'll have to wait and see what happens. Yes, I think 38% of the shareholders or so voted against this proposal, but it did go through, as you say. I think it's an interesting one because obviously those people who invested before, they certainly are still hoping they'll get something out of the Russian holdings, which have been marked down effectively pretty much to zero because of sanctions and because there's no trade anyway in the the Russian stock market for them. So, yeah, it's an interesting one. So they're kind of, it will be stuck where it is for the time being. But it's gone through, and uh, we'll see whether they can make any uh, money out of the balance of the cash that they've got, as you, as you say, without diluting the, uh, the ones who are hoping that someday, one day, Russia will come back into the global financial community. 
Let's also talk about uh, NB monthly income. This is an interesting story also because there's been effectively a shareholder vote here as well. And uh, this trust, which, uh, as it suggests, invests mainly in debt and provides a monthly income, that is going to go out of business, effectively, the board has decided. I think this is slightly strange and a bit sad, really. So it launched in 2011 as NB Global Floating Rate, I think, or NB Floating Rate. So it was investing in floating rate debt. So as interest rates fell, so the returns that it was earning fell, and it didn't look all that clever. And I think investors got a bit disillusioned with it, um, and it had to then introduce a raft of discount control measures, one of which became these semi-annual tenders. So it did a tender in July this year for 25% of the fund, and actually only had take up for 10% of the fund. So that was undersubscribed, which to me, you know, sounds like it was actually getting some backing at long last. But um, there was another one due in December, and the board felt that if the fund was going to shrink below 150 million, it wasn't really viable. And so they talked to some of the shareholders, we don't sure how many and, and who, and came up with the idea that they're going to, to run the thing off. It's going to take up to 24 months to turn it into cash. But to me, the timing is daft, really, because we finally got the position for the last nine months, everything's been going the other way. So the yield on the portfolio, I think at the beginning of the year was something like 6.3%, and at the end of October, it's 99 And the yield to maturity in the portfolio at the end of October was 13.1%. So it's really quite chunky numbers. Obviously, investors are slightly worried that with rising recession, rising interest um, expenses, that some of those borrowers might not be able to pay their money back. Um, so you may get rising defaults. The managers are quite sanguine about this, though. They don't really think that's an issue. But nevertheless, that, that might have been part of the thinking. But I think as a new investor in floating rate income now, this is sort of the perfect time to be buying in rather than time to be getting out. So there we go. These things are, are perverse. It's a bit, like you said, when you're talking about conventional sciences, like um, people tend, tend to like investing things at the top of the market and selling them at the bottom. They just tends to be the way that they do it. Yes, it does. Certainly when things are so volatile and probably will carry on being volatile. I mean, that 150 million figure, which is a figure we hear a lot about from wealth managers and, and others saying, we're not going to be interested unless you've got a, a market cap bigger than that. But in such a volatile market, you'd think that uh, very easily we could go back up to a, a more decent size. But I guess uh, once you're committed to this tender route, these regular tenders, you are, in, in a sense, a victim of the market cycle, aren't you, at some point? There's always be a point where people will be feeling negative and they're going to... Uh, want to tender their shares back. So it is a strange one. You're right. On the face of it, it looks rather rather a strange outcome. On the other hand, I think there will be people who say, well, this just shows that you know boards can actually do their job and they're disciplined and they're not going to just keep the thing going uh, forever just to um, carry on earning some fees and so on. So I guess you could argue it both ways. But as you say, it is an interesting one, particularly in the current environment. Well, let's move on then and talk about some less positive news, if you like. The big stories that's attracted a lot of headlines this week concerns Home REIT, which is an investment trust which uh, set out to fund property for the homeless. Hard to think of a better cause on the face of it. But it's now been the subject of an attack by uh, quite a well-known short-selling outfit in America. They put out a report this week which uh, was very critical about Home REIT. Tell us what you know about that so far, James. What are they saying and what's been the impact? We have to caveat everything we say here with allegedly and, and then she says, he says type things, because really it's very hard to comment and, and know for sure what's going on. But the short seller is basically claiming two things. One is that the people who are renting home rental properties can't really afford to pay the rent and can't really commit to the 25-year leases that they're signed up to, which maybe we'll come back to. And the other one is that Home Recall, the manager, has been artificially inflating the NAV as a way of earning more money out of its management fee. And it, it criticises the whole model of paying management fees based on NEV, which uh, is critical for the whole sector. So I think it's a, I mean, we can probably just dismiss this one out of hand, but maybe it's a thing that America, they don't understand America, I don't know. But um, there's, there's a, some weird numbers that they've got out from the land registry that sort of suggests that maybe HomeRe paid vastly inflated amounts of money for individual properties. But I just cannot believe that that would have got through the various investment committees and the board and everything else 
So I, I find that one quite hard to believe. And it sounds much more likely to me that somebody that then registers made a mistake with the numbers. That wouldn't uh, be impossible. Yeah, I mean, because of COVID, you know, it took ever to get uh, any kind of changes made. Yeah, that's certainly possible. I mean, but it is an interesting one because there are echoes here, obviously, of we had another short seller attack on uh, Civitas Social Housing last year, which unfortunately for the company anyway, um, has proved to be very effective. I mean, the, the share price sold off very sharply because of shareholders' reaction to the concerns that they raised. And uh, it's continued to sell off. And it's now, having traded at a premium more than 100p, it's now down to around 65p and has yet to sort of effectively rebut, if you like, the allegations or insinuations or, or whatever you like to call them that have been made. I mean, this case is interesting because the short-selling outfit called Viceroy Research is based in America and claims to have been, well, I think was one of the first short-sellers that highlighted the problems at Wirecard in Germany, the infamous, uh, I suppose, uh, corporate bankruptcy, which unfortunately spilled over into uh, quite a well-known investment trust as well. But it is quite strange about this. I mean, Home Read is an interesting example because it only came to the market two years ago, October 2020. And since then, it's raised an extraordinary amount of money for a trust, which, uh, let's be honest, didn't have a long, great track record. It had no track record at all, effectively, uh, as this particular entity. It had raised nearly, you know, thick end of 900 million or so uh, in two subsequent placings. Uh, so it's only been around for about two years. And then two of the managers who were initially on the trust have left the advisory firm one for personal reasons, one for health reasons. And it's just grown very, very quickly. But obviously, there was a great appeal, the idea of being you know, able to back a trust that is doing something really worthy, like uh, providing homeless accommodation, obviously had an attraction, particularly for um, you know, anybody who was interested in, I guess, in ESG and, and other kind of fashionable ideas like that. No, it's, this is the same thing. It's the same thing as Civis House. It's the same thing as the, the triple point social housing rate. I don't know. Depends on your, your views of these things, but to my mind, in an ideal world, for something like the provision of housing for homeless people or provision of housing for people with specialist needs, which is what Civitas has and Triple Point do, the government would just pay for this. It would just be done off the government balance sheet at very low government borrowing costs. You'd build vast numbers of houses. There wouldn't be any fuss about what the rents were because they'd be paying them to themselves. And everything would be hunky-dory. But because there is no sort of sensible joint-up thinking centrally, there's a, a gap there where these funds have stepped in and said, well, okay, well, we will adapt existing houses, as has often been the case for civil test triple point, or build new ones to suit and provide this accommodation. And we know that you as a government have promised to pay for it, because you, you give grants to local authorities and things, specifically budgets, to, to cover this sort of thing. And so we will rent the houses to you. We won't go mad on what we charge you in terms of the rent. The people that live in them need to be living there for, well, some of them for their whole life, really. So, you know, 30, 40 years. So 25-year leases sound about right. And um, to my mind, the whole thing just seems quite sort of sensible. But for whatever reason... The regulators in particular just haven't got their heads around this. And there's been this persistent problem in that the funding to pay the rent comes annually, but uh, you've got a 25-year commitment, and so therefore there's a, a potential balancing problem. But it's only a potential balancing problem in theory. And can, what are you going to do? You're going to stop paying the rent and throw these people out in the street? This doesn't make any logical sense, really. So um, there we go. But it, something has to be done about this. It needs to be tackled. I don't know how it's going to happen, but um, it doesn't really make any sense. There is an issue with home re that, again, so this is like seizing on things that are true or appear to be true and inflating these things. There's an issue that one of its uh, tenants, Circle Housing, has run into trouble and has not been able to pay its rent. But just as I was saying a minute ago, the administrators for that charity are paying the rent because they know that they can't turf the tenants in. So there we go. It's a tricky one, isn't it? Obviously, since legislation came in saying that at least those who are involuntarily homeless Councils have to provide something in the, in the end, either or charities, uh, but it does raise a problem because, in effect, therefore, it is something of a new sector, and by definition, some of these uh, charities, or indeed local authorities, we don't, uh, you know, making long-term commitments. The selling point for the trust is that they've got long-term leases with uh, caps and collars, inflation built-in increases between one and four percent every year, and so on. It looks very, very attractive. 
But uh, there must be some concern over whether that funding is there in the longer run. I should say, of course, at this point, that the Trust has put out a statement saying that this report from uh, Viceroy Research is inaccurate and misleading based on mistaken assumptions, misinformed comments and uh, disputable allegations. They're also they're going to be making their results announcement on Monday, or at least they're planning to. And so presumably then this will be their opportunity to come back and actually try and counter this uh, allegation more effectively. Uh, but in the meantime, we have to say that, well, I was just looking at the numbers. I mean, the share prices has, has tanked effectively. They're now trading on a discount to the reported NAV anyway of, you know, 45, 50%. And on the face of it, this again raises, I guess, an issue of credibility for the investment trust sector. I mean, since this one came to market, the NAV is, I think, up about 27% this morning, the stated NAV, and the share price total return is minus 30%. I mean, this is not the kind of experience that if you're looking from a point of view of the investment trust sector to raise more money from retail investors and so on, this is not the kind of thing you really want to see happening. So, you know, as with Civitas Social Housing, again, it's unfortunate that happened. And if there's other cases like this and they're not rectified, that surely is going to have, because there will be people who are losing money on this now. Yeah, so there are some investors calling quite precipitously for Home Reed to sue these people because the short seller have, have actually used the word fraud. And that sounds like the sort of thing you might want to take action on. Um, it's going to talk to the lawyers about. It's expensive to do that, but, but somebody needs to put a nail in it and, and stop it happening, I think. Yeah. Well, it's an interesting story, but uh, one hope that the one that uh, does have a happy ending. But for the moment, we don't know that. And certainly the market reaction has been, as it tends to be in these cases. I think that's the other general point, isn't it? What tends to normally happen is that when you get a, a report like this, unless it's immediately and effectively rebutted, people kind of sell first and then decide to try and work out whether it's the right thing to do. Just in case. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so, and that, that's certainly what Anna Arnes was saying today. It's just like... Home re- really needs to get on with it. I know that they've got results out on Monday anyway, but the longer you leave it, the worse it gets. Because yeah. people just say, oh, maybe there's some truth. Maybe there's some truth. No smoke without fire and all that. Yeah. Well, it would be unfortunate. And of course, there will be questions then for the board to answer and for the brokers to answer and so on. All very interesting. To raise a billion pounds or getting off at 900 million pounds or so with a relatively untried concept. It's a sign of how healthy the market has been, but not necessarily a, a sign of good long-term health if we have other problems like this. Talking about managers, we should also perhaps mention at this point, there's also been an announcement from DGI9, which is one of these new digital infrastructure trusts, who have said that two of their management team are leaving. Again, this is one that only came to the market uh, quite recently. And that's, uh, again, it's slightly unusual, is it not, to see managers leaving uh, so soon after the launch of a, of a new vehicle like this? Yeah, well, I, I can actually recall the occasion where the management team walked out during the IPO process, but with <laughs> JP Morgan multi-asset. But yeah, it is unusual, and it is similar from the point of view that we've got another fund doing something a bit new, a bit different, raised an awful lot of money very fast. Uh, I think it's, it's about a billion quid, and they put that to work, but there's been a falling out, and the seems to be around the emergence of the discount. So the, the fund went to trade at a discount, I suppose really because interest rates were rising and people were worried that the discount rates used to value the assets were, were going to rise too. That would put downward pressure on the NEV and so therefore the thing started to trade at a discount. But effectively what that meant was they couldn't raise any more money. So in July, they managed to scrape together £60 million, which is not a bad result, really. I think mean, a lot of funds would be very happy if they could raise £60 million, but I think they were a bit disappointed by that amount. And then as the discount widened, it became apparent that they couldn't raise any more for some time yet. And the managers had a whole raft of projects lined up that they wanted to invest in. And this is, this is all third hand. From my understanding is that they went to the board and said, we want to launch a limited partnership vehicle to invest alongside the fund. And the board were unhappy about that. Um, and they said, well, all right, then we're off. So they disappeared. And the chap who's been sort of stepped up to the plate hasn't got any digital infrastructure investing experience. I mean, he's an experienced manager, so I'm sure he's going to have a pretty good idea of what he's doing. But nevertheless, he's got that sort of digital expertise. So presumably they're going to have to go out and, and find a new management team to replace them. Either that, or it's been suggested today to me that one and just knock the two together, because there's another one, Cordian, that's still hanging around there, and just make them one big fund. I wouldn't be completely averse to that idea. 
Because, I mean, again, these have become quite substantial uh, vehicles in quite a short time. The market cap of Digital 9 infrastructure, uh, which is a ticker DGI 9, it was around $730 million this morning, despite having sold off a little bit, um, and is trading on a 20% discount. And Cordian is about the same sort of size now, $687 million. So it would make a substantial uh, vehicle if they did combine them. But these things are always difficult, aren't they? We all know that uh, mergers and so on are, are quite difficult to organise. There's always arguments about who sits at the table and who continues to be employed. So here again, there's a case where the board has to do something quite quickly, probably, to re-establish um, the kind of credibility of their venture at the moment. How do you see these uh, particular trusts anyway, the Digital Infrastructure Trust? Do you think they are attractive? They pay decent yields or they promise to pay decent yields? And uh, they've raised a lot of money again, as I said. It's a very new concept for the sector. So I think we're still getting our heads around how this works in practice. And what happens in a recession is a whole other question that faces an awful lot of funds. And obviously, we haven't seen recessions and inflation for some years. And here we are facing both. And so we just don't know how they're going to work. But in theory, a lot of the, the demand for this stuff, whether it's broadband or telecom towers or data centers, is really quite sticky. And so they should be able to carry on generating the revenues, carry on paying the dividends, regardless of what's going on. That's that's the theory. And this is why this sort of falls into this sort of infrastructure category rather than as a sort of normal telecoms business. But it's not far off a telecoms business, <laughs> as far as I can work out. So, uh, yeah, the jury's out. I guess the, the, the proof of the pudding so far is that they're both trading on discounts. They're both around... 17, 18% discounts, and they're still obviously now trading below their issue price. So there's um, there's there's work to be done, shall we say. Finally, James, I wanted to ask you about the windfall profits tax on renewable energy infrastructure trust. That's obviously was a big story in the mini budget. But since then, we've had a series of uh, NAV updates from many of the companies that operate in this space. And uh, they've obviously been benefiting from higher prices and so on. But equally, they've been having to adjust for this potential windfall profit tax. So what's been your reading, having looked at the companies that have been reporting? I mean, this week we heard from uh, Foresight Solar, we heard from Bluefield Solar, we've heard from uh, Renewables Infrastructure Group and US uh, Solar as well. Uh, What's your kind of general takeaway from what they've been saying? Overwhelmingly, it's a bit of a non-event in terms of um, the NEVs, which is good. Although there's a lot of actually moving parts underneath all of this, and, and we have to sort of delve a bit deeper perhaps. Obviously, we've we've had these rising power prices for some time now, and the spike in power prices doesn't feed straight through into the NEVs because a lot of people have sold their power forward. So they, they sell it under contracts for one or two years forward. And quite often, those prices have been below the current market price for power. So there's been a kind of lag effect, really. So the road power prices have been rising. The effect of that on the NEVs has, has kind of lagged a bit. But nevertheless, they were starting to look like sizable windfall revenues. And it became more and more obvious that the windfall tax was coming. So at the end of September, when they were calculating NEVs, what seems to have happened is that the, the independent forecasters that give them the power price forecast that they feed through into the NEVs came up with some power curves as to what the actual prices were going to be in the market. And then they discounted those on the basis that we're going to get some kind of levy. We don't know what that's going to look like, but we're not going to be able to earn the sorts of money that you're talking about, you know, maybe sort of £150 next year and £120 a year after, that sort of stuff. So the common pattern seems to be that they they took about 50% haircut on the forecast for next year, and then maybe sort of 30, 35 for the year after, and then a small amount the year after that. That went into the NEV at the end of September. Then when the windfall levy came along, they wrote that back up again, put in the windfall levy, and the thing came out more or less the same. So they got it about right, basically. But the combination of the higher power prices, because it's still getting you know, £75 a megawatt, and then 55% of everything above that, which is what they're allowed to earn, it's still a chunky number. So that, the higher inflation, which obviously feeds through into their subsidies, that's, that's been a positive thing too that's been driving up the NAVs. Now, the other big thing that's been uh, working on this has been the rise in interest rates. And people were getting nervous that if the interest rates are going up, then the discount rate they use to value the cash flows from these things has to go up too. So as discount rate rise, the NAV falls. 
the impact of that doesn't seem to have been too bad. So basically, across the board, they've all said, we're going to put our discount rates up by half percent. That's just almost like universal. The only one that didn't do that was downing renewables and infrastructure, where it did half percent on its UK assets, half percent on its Swedish assets, where we've got some debt on them. But the ones, the Swedish assets don't have any debt, they just put them by 0.3. But otherwise, everybody else put them up by 0.5. That's not as much as the interest rates have gone up. But actually, it was, it was Hickel infrastructure. I know not renewable space, but the same, same kind of idea that drew attention to the fact that actually, although the rates were coming down for many years, they weren't bringing down the discount rates in line with the interest rates. So, so as things switch back the other way, there's, there's no real pressure to match the two. And with yeah. all of this, a lot of moving parts is that the NEVs have actually, for the most part, gone up. So we've seen... Big jumps on the end of March NEVs, smaller jumps on the end of June NEVs. Foresight Solar, I think, hasn't actually announced one, but they said the windfall tax took off 0.8p from their NEV. So it's really not the end of the world. And then some smaller ones like Downing and Atrato said we're not affected at all because there is a kind of de minimis in it. I mean, one of the things I suppose one could say if one had a slightly sceptical mind about this is that with so many moving parts in the calculations, it would be natural to come up with a combination when things are moving in opposite directions to come up with something that uh, sounds reasonably reassuring given the, the long-term nature of these uh, adjustments. But it is it is generally good news. I suppose the only difference one could say now is that most of the renewable energy trusts are now trading at small discounts, basically, or between 0 and 10%, whereas before they were trading at premiums and were therefore able to go on issuing new equity. Just looking at the list as of uh, Friday morning, I can see six which are trading at a premium and the rest are paying at, at a discount, a small discount, or in some, one or two cases, a larger discount. I guess the message from all that is there's more differentiation now between these uh, renewable energy trusts, and you really have to do a bit of homework to, to dig behind the surface to find out which ones are a better place than others. What it does mean, though, is to say we might see a pause in the amount of secondary issuance, because as long as they trade at discounts, then, then they can't really raise new equity. Uh, and it has been such a, a plentiful source of issuance for these trusts uh, so far. Their yields are unaffected. They're also trading on decent yields, average around 53 6% quite common. Yeah, so, no, some of these are really quite attractive. Another one that was announcing things this week was Next Energy Solar. It's one of the few. Most of them gave up the idea of promising to increase the dividend each year in line with inflation, but it, it's sticking by that for the moment anyway. And it's able to do that because it's got very good visibility on its cash flows. It's got the, it knows what the subsidy income is going to be. It knows what the inflation rate is more or less going to be. And it also, because it's sold the power forward, knows what its power revenues are going to be as well. And now it knows what the impact of the windfall tax levy is going to be. And it can confidently say, look to next year, say, we think we can hike the dividend in line with inflation and still have it covered 1.3 to 1.5 times, which is, you know, not bad going. So I think well, what I'm hoping is that with all of this stuff now finalised, we've had a lot of worry about where discounts rates are going, we've had a lot of worry about where windfall tax is going to be, that investors now will, will, will become a little bit less nervous and we'll, we actually see those discounts eliminated and we get back to, to raising some money again. Because a lot of them have got very big plans, particularly with Next Energy for the moment. It's planning to invest an awful lot of money into battery storage projects. And it's got a lot lined up that it would like to finance. Bluefield, who you mentioned before, it's got 250 megawatts of new solar projects that he wants to finance. So we need to do this if we're going to meet our net zero targets in the UK. So it needs to be done. Hopefully, we are getting close to back to normal, if you like. Well, let's hope that's the case. Well, that brings us to the end of this particular segment. Uh, thank you, James, very much for your time, as always, this week. We'll look forward to seeing how these uh, issues pan out. And, uh, of course, on Monday, we'll hear from the board of Home REIT and see what they've got to say about this uh, troubling little episode. Thank you much, Jonathan. Been fun, as always. So that was James Carthew, Director of Quoted Data, the Investment Trust Research Company. I move on now to talk to uh, Carlos Hardenberg, the lead manager of the Mobius Investment Trust, uh, which, as I mentioned, came to the market in 2018, uh, named after the very well-known emerging markets investor, Dr. Mark Mobius, who now in his 80s, but who ran Templeton Emerging Markets for many years, which was the first of 
the big global emerging market uh, trusts to come to the market. Dr. Mobius left about five years ago and uh, set up this very different vehicle, Mobius Investment Trust, to carry on. It, its mandate is to invest in emerging markets, but its uh, approach is completely different to that of some of the bigger, well-known generalists' investment trusts, including Templeton Emerging Markets and uh, J.P. Morgan Emerging Markets Investment Trusts. They invest across the whole globe and aim to beat a particular uh, the Global Emerging Markets Index. But the Mobius Investment Trust approach is uh, is very different. It runs a concentrated portfolio, uh, as we will hear from uh, Carlos Hardenberg, and uh, looks to specialise in relatively smaller companies. Uh, there's not room to include the whole of this very interesting 40-minute uh, conversation with Carlos Hardenberg, in which we range right across uh, most of the major elements of the emerging markets, starting with uh, Russia, the impact of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. We move on to talk about China, India, South America, and the general outlook for a trust of this kind. The trust is relatively small compared to the very large global emerging market trusts I mentioned before, uh, whose assets run into billions. Uh, the Mobius Investment Trust has uh, a market capitalization of uh, around 150 million, uh, a little bit under that, and has been trading around par recently. But it has shares are down this year in common with uh, most developed uh, and emerging markets. But of course, the emerging markets complex is dominated by China, but also includes uh, a number of uh, regions or countries which have actually performed well this year, notably uh, India and uh, Brazil, uh, being two countries which have produced uh, uh, very strong results for different reasons uh, so far this year. So much to talk about with Mr. Hardenberg, who's uh, been investing in emerging markets for many years. He was uh, one of the managers of the Templeton Emerging Markets Investment Trust, working with Dr. Mobius for many years uh, and has lived in many of the emerging market countries. The full interview, a really fascinating discussion, can be found on the Moneymakers website for subscribers to the Moneymakers Circle where in addition to the results, as I've said, we also have another of our regular investment trust profiles, which this week features the Venerable F&C Investment Trust, founded in 1868. So I started off by asking Carlos Hardenberg to tell us why the Mobius Investment Trust had no exposure to Russia and therefore was not affected by the dramatic and uh, rather depressing news of the Russian invasion of Ukraine earlier this year. And then we go on to talk about China and current valuations and the likely outlook for emerging markets uh, from here. You took the decision about Russia before the invasion of Ukraine. What was the thinking there? We definitely did not have any information or inside knowledge about uh, an upcoming war. We observed exactly the same news flow as everybody else. However, I've been living sort of quasi in Russia. I was based out of Warsaw and I was responsible for Russia. So I've been observing the deterioration of governance in Russia now over the last decade. The government taking more and more control of certain key sectors, uh, particularly, of course, in resources and commodities, but also in media. Um, and we've just observed how the overall situation in Russia has deteriorated over time. And we felt that no matter which company we looked at, the involvement of the state got bigger and bigger and more and more influence felt by the government, which is something which we did not really wanted to tolerate uh, in the portfolio. And we have choices. Nobody forces us to invest in Russia unless you blindly follow the benchmark. The benchmark prescribed about 4% before the crisis uh, happened, before the war started. And we, si we simply felt that uh, there are other places, other countries where you've got a better balance of private sector, entrepreneurial environment, married with uh, governance and a public sector, which is more supportive uh, and um, much more conducive, sort of creating a more conducive environment for private sector enterprises than Russia. 
So before we come back and talk about the portfolio in, in more detail, perhaps then we should then talk next about China, because China is obviously a substantial part of the Emerging Markets Index. I think it got up to about 40% at one point. So you can't really ignore that unless you ignore the index altogether. It's not like Russia. It's not 4%. It's more like uh, 40%. What is your thinking about China at the moment? You've written a lot about it, which is all very interesting. We'll come on to some of that. But uh, what is your thinking about what's going on in China at the moment and whether or not it is uh, to the extent in which it's investable and how far you are investing in China? So um, we actually try to ignore the index altogether. So we've got an active share which measures the difference between your portfolio and the benchmark of over 98%, which is, again, very unique. I don't think anyone else has that. So we, we are not investing in China per se, but I want to be more precise here. We look at the situation in China with a lot of concern. The reason why we've been concerned about China actually before zero COVID and before the crackdown on some of the larger businesses that we've observed over the last one or two years is because if you look at the A-share market, yes, it's large. Yes, it's very diverse. There are many businesses um, that you can invest in, but still the transparency of these businesses, the disclosure leaves a lot to be desired. Uh, many of these companies, if not the vast majority of these companies are audited in a, a dissatisfactory way by auditors that we are not familiar with. Many of them we've never heard of and they change, they come and go. The management teams are not very stable. The disclosure itself is not very stable and not very reliable. Um, so overall, it's really a question of how you define investing. If you want to throw a dart, you may be lucky. Uh, but if you want to invest based on fundamental know-how and conviction, China continues to be a very, very difficult place to invest, which does by no way mean we are not interested in China. China is a very important economy, a very large economy. We are quite excited about some of the trends uh, that we are seeing in China, and many companies will be benefiting from these trends. So it's our conviction that there are other ways how we can indirectly get exposure to China without having to pay the price and purchase companies where you are exposed to the conditions I described before. And the way to do this in our mind is to identify companies in, for example, Korea, sort of in the wider region in Asia, including Taiwan, uh, but also Southeast Asia in general. Uh, companies which are successfully conducting business in China or companies which are indirectly benefiting from, you know, higher spending ability of Chinese households, etc. Obviously, you've done very well in relative terms since you started the trust. You're up positively over that time and uh, you've outperformed the peer group. But it hasn't been such a good year this year. The share price is down, though the discount has narrowed again, I've noticed, which is good news. The big macro issues We'd be interested to know your thoughts on. Obviously, we've had the dollar has been incredibly strong, and that is tends to be negative for emerging markets. We're now we're seeing belated interest rate rises from the developed economies who have had uh, you know the benefit of effectively subsidised money for a while. So, do you think that this is a point where the pendulum is going to swing back towards emerging markets versus developed markets? Obviously, you're positive about emerging markets and the things you're investing in, but do you see from a macro point of view that this uh, climate is likely to become more favourable to emerging markets now? Not quite yet. I think we have to get ready for a tough winter. I think we have to get ready for bad news over the winter coming from China and many other markets. Obviously, you know, you mentioned the strong dollar, but, you know, we also still in this um, pandemic environment where lots of uncertainties are there, um, maybe not as bad as they used to be. I think the world is much better prepared, but still there's going to be bad news. Uh, so I think short term, I would be uh, cautious if you have a two, three uh, or longer, like ourselves, five to 10 year investment horizon. We are in a situation right now where emerging markets, if you look at the relative valuations, trade close to a 20-year record discount, two-decade discount uh, against developed markets. Uh, that normally doesn't last that long. That is not their 
to stay because obviously the markets are growing faster. The business models are very exciting. They have taken a huge share in technology and innovation. What used to be just commodities and you know simple business models are now some of the most sophisticated business models on the planet. They're competing globally. They have access to trade. They have access to know-how and intellectual property. And if you get that at a very strong discount, it's typically, a, for us, a very interesting time to invest in these markets. And so I think long term, we will continue to see that emerging markets will play a larger and larger role in global investing, and they will take a larger and larger share in some of these very exciting industries. Um, and that's exactly why I think they shouldn't be ignored um, and why right now, when everybody is so pessimistic uh, it's a good time uh, to invest, but you have to be willing to go through choppy waters in the short term. Uh, if we looked across your portfolio, your concentrated portfolio of 2023 type stocks, you are investing in quality companies, as you say, and, and in growth companies. But what sort of valuations are you seeing across your portfolio and how would they compare to the, the benchmark, obviously, and to uh, developed markets? So if you look at the shorter term multiples, we're looking at um, 10 to 12 times in terms of EV EBITDAs. The benchmark itself has a lot of legacy businesses like, you know, commodity companies, commodity businesses, banks. We have nothing in banks. We have nothing in sort of incumbent uh, businesses, but we are rather investing in disruptors. So the benchmark is slightly cheaper than that. If you look at forward multiples, and we're looking at three to five year forward multiples, we are sort of mid single digit multiples we're looking at in terms of EV EBITDAs and even price to earning multiples fall into single digits. So that is quite a rare occurrence, uh, even in emerging markets. And yes, by the way, you're right. This year obviously has been tough. I think we've done relatively well considering the circumstances. Uh, and we've obviously done relatively well avoiding some of the biggest traps in EMs. But yes, it's been a period where particularly the semiconductor technology cycle has uh, negatively impacted us. And of course, the postponement of the, the longer COVID cycle, the zero COVID policy in China has also had an indirectly negative impact on, on our performance. That was Carlos Hardenberg, the lead manager of the Mobius Investment Trust. Now, that's it for this week. Next week, we will be back. I shall be discussing the week's events with a, another investment trust specialist. Uh, and in addition, we will continue to provide updates on many of the other features that we provide via Moneymakers. Thank you so much for listening, and I look forward to talking to you again next week. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening. And if you want more news, analysis, interviews, and other investment trust content, don't forget to take a look at our premium service, The Moneymakers Circle, available now at the website.